0: This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. For details, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from The Young Turks, Truth Truthdig Radio, Democracy Now!, Le Show!, Radio Dispatch, commentator John Mill, The Ralph Nader Radio Hour, Common Sense with Dan Carlin, and The Jimmy Dore Show. Mm-hmm.
1: At least 11 people have been killed after gunmen opened fire in the newsroom of French satirical magazine Charlie Hebdo in Paris. French President François Hollande made the announcement from the scene, describing it as a terror attack. He said four more people were, quote, between life and death, and said that police officers were among the victims. Police said that the gunmen opened fire inside the magazine's offices using automatic AK-47 rifles before running away. Charlie Hebdo gained notoriety in February 2006 when it reprinted cartoons of the Prophet Muhammad, which originally appeared in the Danish daily Ullanspussen, causing controversy across the Muslim world. Then, in November 2011, its offices were firebombed when the satirical magazine published a cartoon of Muhammad under the title Sharia Hebdo. Speaking in January 2013, publisher Stéphane Charbonnier, known as Sharb, said that when they use images of the prophet, it's not to ridicule him, but to ridicule those who use his image in a negative way. Oh,
2: trying to turn the pages of my magazine,
3: while trying to keep a hold of your hand, and ordering a coffee that I wouldn't ever drink, just to keep. You in Paris on my mind Just to keep you in Paris on my mind I didn't know it would be the last time The last
1: time I saw you
4: Huge march in Paris, uh, the rest of France, and the rest of the world as well. Uh, this is, of course, to commemorate the 17 people who were victims of the terrorist attacks in Paris, including uh, 12 people killed at Charlie Hebdo, uh, four killed in a hostage situation, and another uh, police uh, person shot uh, by that same uh, Amadi Um So, uh, now, I love the show of solidarity that people in uh, France showed there and all across the world. So... In Paris, they have estimated that there was 1.2 to 1.6 million people marching. And that is amazing, obviously holding up a lot of French flags. Uh, Part of the reason for holding up the French flag is not just patriotism, but it's to say uh, that we are all united as Frenchmen, uh, no matter where we're from, religion, race, or otherwise. And then uh, a lot of people holding up pens, and then you saw a giant pen there with the words not afraid on there. And, of course, the pen is to represent the cartoonists who were killed, and freedom of speech, and freedom of expression. Uh, And I think that is why this has really struck a chord with uh, a lot of people. It's not just the number of people killed 17 overall. uh, It is the idea that was attacked. And that's why so many people have responded. Now, uh, we also had world leaders there, over 40 world leaders. And I want to show you one of those pictures. Uh, We had British Prime Minister David Cameron was there, and then Angela Merkel, the leader of uh, Germany, obviously. But in this picture you see... Uh, not only uh, Merkel there, uh, but also uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu from Israel and Mahmoud Abbas from the Palestinian territories. Now, there was some controversies as to whether Netanyahu and Abbas were going to go in the last minute. For fairly political reasons, they wound up going. But I'm really glad they did. I really like that picture. I think it's a good picture to send to the rest of the world of people united against this kind of attacks, no matter where they're from. So I think that was terrific. Now, uh, there was also actually... Um, Pictures from all across the world in uh, people marching in solidarity. So we had Dresden, Germany, significant number of people uh, marching there. And then you had Tokyo, Japan. That's wonderful to see. Look, uh, this is a horrible tragedy, but the response has been great all across the world. Washington, D.C. there, obviously. Uh, And then you had New York. And, of course, New York and D.C. also attacked in different circumstances. And then Marseille in France... Also huge, huge march there. 3.7 million people across France overall, all the way down to Paraguay, uh, South Africa, and then back to New York as well. So uh, it's great. And, and uh, we also, had the French leaders with uh, some moving words, uh, Francois Hollande, the, the president of course of France, say, today Paris is the capital of the world. Now, look, you don't want these type of tragedies. You don't want your city to be the capital of the world. Of course, during 9-11, we were the center of the world, and then we had the rest of the world um, you know, mourn with us. It's not a situation you want to be in, but at least you get to see all those people saying, we're going to stand up uh, against this, and we're not going to be afraid, and we're going to be united together. And finally, uh, the French prime minister also said, we are all Charlie, we are all police, we are all Jews of France. Because, of course, uh, the people killed in the kosher bakery were Jewish and uh And then it's not not just in France that this is happening. there was an arson attack uh, against a German newspaper uh, Hamburger Morgan Post uh, that had also reproduced the Mohammed cartoons that Charlie Hebdo had uh, originally put up and not only that uh Charlie Ebdo itself is putting out a issue on Wednesday, and in that issue they will have new cartoons of Mohammed so coming right back at him, saying, you will not intimidate us, you will not stop us from doing what we do. And uh, I can't imagine a bigger act of courage after 12 people killed in their offices for that reason, and they do it again. And so uh, as I look at this, I think this is what the world is supposed to be about, Uh, as we have people from every race, every religion, every nationality getting together saying, "Uh, these are the principles we will stand up for, and here we are standing up. I love it, I am also charming. The
2: season of murder, the body and soul, the dreams being shattered, the damnation control. Give back our country we come to defend. Our right to inspire, to love and befriend Our right to be healthy, our right to believe In a country of equals, of a chance to receive A chance to develop, a chance to forgive A chance to dignify the way that we live as we Let's hear from Juan Cole. Juan, are you with us? I am here. Now, we're of course going to talk about this massacre, which killed 12 people um, so far in Paris. And uh, you, you wrote a really interesting piece, which we republished on Truthdig. Why Al Qaeda attacked uh, Charlie Hebdo, and um, and you 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 pose it as uh, um, uh, something of a recruit a recruiting tactic. Can you explain that?
5: Right. Well, when these small terrorist groups commit these dramatic acts of terrorism, they know that there will be a backlash from mainstream society. They know that the media will uh, cover it 24-7. And one of the things that they're hoping for is to create a polarized political atmosphere that in turn will make it easier for them to recruit people from their group,
2: yeah, and you point out that contrary to popular belief, um, the, they have a real recruiting problem in Europe, especially in France, where a um, majority of Muslims aren't very religious and don't particularly care about the politics. And if they are, unless, and you, you suppose that perhaps if they are um, targeted as a group, and there's a wild overreaction. And then they are are then it becomes a sort of um, tit for tat. They could be provoked into joining Al Qaeda.
5: That's exactly right. If if uh, the national front party in uh, in France uh, organizes people uh, to actively put pressure on Muslims, uh, then uh, then their lives will become uh, more unpleasant. And when Al Qaeda shows up and says, "We can save you from." Uh Marine Le Pen and the Nationalists uh, they might get a, a, an easier hearing of it.
2: his face the on
3: For more, we're joined by the article's author, Jeremy Scahill. Jeremy, welcome back to Democracy Now! Let's talk about this latest
2: news out of France.
6: Yeah. Well, I mean, first of all, um, you know, what we saw yesterday on display, uh, on the one hand, was very heartening to see so many people come into the streets. And, you know, the, one of the core issues of, of, of press freedom, if this, if this is a moment where the whole world is saying um, we have to have a free press and that uh, no matter how controversial or hateful, uh... some of the speeches uh... or maybe interpreted in some communities that um, you know we we judge a free press by how we treat the journalists or the stories that we we don't like or that we're offended by um, but on the other hand this is a sort of a circus of hypocrisy when it comes to all of those world leaders who were marching at the front of it um, i mean every single one of those heads of state or representatives of governments there have waged their own wars um, against journalists you know, David Cameron ordered The Guardian to smash with a hammer uh, the hard drives that stored the files of NSA whistleblower uh, Edward Snowden. Um, blasphemy is considered a crime in Ireland. Um, you had multiple African and Arab leaders whose uh, own countries right now have scores of journalists in prison. Uh, Benjamin Netanyahu's government in Israel has uh, targeted for killing um, numerous journalists who have reported on the Palestinian side, uh, have uh, kidnapped, abducted, jailed journalists. Um, You know, there's this controversy right now. Why didn't President Obama go or why didn't Joe Biden go? You know, Eric Holder was there already and was representing the United States. Um, You know, I I think that, uh, uh, you know, we should remember, uh, and I was saying this on Twitter over the weekend, that Yemen should have sent the Yemeni journalists, al Haider Shaya as their representative. He, of course, was imprisoned for years on the direct orders of President Obama for having reported on secret U.S. strikes in Yemen that killed scores of civilians. Or Sudan should have sent Sami al-Hajj, the the, uh, Al Jazeera uh, cameraman, who was held for six years without charge in Guantanamo and repeatedly interrogated um, by U.S. operatives who were intent on proving that Al Jazeera had some sort of a link to Al Qaeda. So, you know, while there is much to take heart in, in terms of this huge outpouring of support for freedom of the press, um, hypocrisy was on full display in the streets of Paris when it came to the world leaders.
3: Reporters Without Borders issued a statement saying it, quote, condemns the presence of predators in the Paris march and, quote, is appalled by the presence of leaders from countries where journalists and bloggers are systematically persecuted, such as Egypt, Russia, Turkey, and United Arab Emirates. A Gambonese journalist covering the march expressed similar reservations about his president, Ali Bongo Odimba, uh, participating in the event.
2: He banned demonstrations in his own country. But is coming to a demonstration in France. That's intolerable for us. It's a complete hypocrisy. We're here not only to show our outrage for what happened to Charlie Hebdo, but also to show our outrage over the fact that dictators like Ali, Bongo, and Dimba
6: are present here in Paris, in a country that supports human rights at an assembly that is in fact dedicated to freedom of expression. Uh, let's remember that the United States uh, bombed uh, Al Jazeera in Afghanistan very early on after 9-11, then bombed uh, the Sheraton Hotel in Basra, Iraq, where Al Jazeera journalists were the only journalists. Um, Then they killed one of the most famous... Uh, Al Jazeera correspondence, um, uh, in Baghdad in April of, uh, 2003, when Victoria Clark, uh, you know, George Bush's Pentagon spokesperson at the time, uh, basically said, if you're an unembedded journalist, you're with the terrorists, and if you die, it's not our fault. They shelled the, uh, the Palestine hotel, uh, killing a Reuters cameraman and the Spanish cameraman, Jose Cuso. So, yes, we should be condemning any and all attacks, especially when they're killing journalists, no matter who the perpetrators are. But let's not act as though the West's hands are clean and that any any one of those world leaders marching yesterday, that their hands uh, are clean on these matters.
7: know that the French security were following at least one of the perpetrators of uh, the killings and uh, followed him around for a while. And then uh, when he got out of jail and or when he returned to France, they uh, kind of lost track of him. Now you're going to hear, and we already are in the case of uh, a British official, security services in the wake of all this demanding more powers got to do more got to have more 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 powers more programs more authorities more ability to surveil if you it is possible to look at the events since 9/11 where you know we fought and won the war on terror remember uh and to see it in this phrase at after 9/11 people called for connecting the dots because the FBI hadn't been talking to the CIA and the CIA hadn't been talking to the thing. and they So they said, okay, connect the dots. And the security services responded by collecting millions more dots. Um, we may be in the same situation today. What we know is that, as I say, the French security services, one of them, um, stopped tracking one of the perpetrators. Now, on British... Sunday Yak show, a British Sunday Yak show today. I don't think this figure was mentioned anywhere on the uh, American Sunday Yak shows, but the Brits have have a couple too. This figure was mentioned by a former high security official of the British government. To track one individual to keep a constant tail on one suspected terrorist, it takes 30 humans. The French security services had uh, undergone budget cuts in recent years. But it takes 30 humans to track one person. Maybe in a tax-averse country, I don't know which one that would be, the decision was made long ago, well, we can't afford the humans, so let's just automate it and, cl- and, and automatically collect stuff on everybody. Even though it's still going to take humans to say, um, let's pull it up on this guy. And finally on this subject, it, it, it couldn't escape notice that the administration issued a full-throated, robust defense of Sony Pictures and the interview last month. Whereas uh, its first statement on Charlie Hebdo was a couple years ago when uh, the paper's headquarters had been bombed. And it was a very nuanced statement defending their right to do stuff but questioning their judgment they didn't question sony's judgment commenters this week uh... a lot of them have flocked to uh, say that charlie Hebdo's cartoons were tasteless and gross and deliberately provocative i didn't hear a lot of that about the interview so I, i'm no dummy I am not Charlie I am Sony
8: Cheer up Charlie
3: Give me a smile What happened to that
8: smile I used to know Don't you know your grin Has always been my sunshine Let that sunshine show Come on, Charlie, no need to frown. Deep down, you know, the world is still your toy.
3: When the world gets heavy, never peer a pat'em. Up and atom boy.
9: I think Someday talking about the attack on Charlie Hebdo as an attack on free speech sort of, like, raises my rankles. Right, right. As it were.
3: Yeah. I mean, obviously this is... I don't know. I feel I feel the same way, because free speech, the whole thing about free speech is, like, no law yeah. shall so on and so on. So, yes, this is an act... Like, it's the same with the interview. It's like, okay, yes, you can say that the interview was censored, but it's not exactly a free speech issue because there was not a law passed against showing the interview. Yeah. And, and maybe we may,
9: we'll get some pushback on this, but my, my feeling is that the talking about, talking about the attack on Charlie Hebdo as an attack on free speech, I think it only makes sense if you really buy into a paranoid, version of like creeping Sharia law or something like I think that like you're saying attacks on free speech are the most dangerous when they come from the state
3: yeah at least that's it's, and, and and I don't mean to be like a contrarian literalist to be to be like well if it's not the law then it's not about free speech? Because, like, this is obviously about... this is. First of all, it was obviously an attack. Yeah. Uh, it was obviously about speech. It was obviously about expression, right? Yeah, and it
9: was obviously about an attempt to curb any future speech. So in that way, it is an attempt to make people self-censor because mm-hmm. they don't want to be, you know, murdered in cold blood. Mm-hmm. So in that way, it, it is, but it's, it's not part of a concerted effort to erode rights or something it's mm-hmm. only it's only attack on free speech in in the way that any one it's you know it's like the Heckler's veto like any one person can uh, can attack somebody else for what they say but that attack is not' is not like a systemic threat to free speech right right it's it's an attack that needs to be that needs to be punished and, and dealt with but it's it's not you know it's not the state sort of uh imposing this systemic punishment or institutional punishment or something like that
3: right and and again of course none of that is to take away from the horror of what happened but it is it, it i think it is an, a, a distinction of are we talking about uh, when we when we say an attack on free speech, we're t- it's a different thing if you're talking about the state, the government arresting you or or silencing you in some other way, than it is. It's just a different thing when it's when it's the state as opposed to when it's not the state. Whether that is whether it's Sony, whether it's you know this, uh, you know these these rogue people, but it's just a it's a it's a distinct it's an important distinction. It's not even in this case a qualitative judgment because obviously this was like you know. Murdering somebody is the worst thing you can do, right? But it's just—it's just, it's just a—it it is, I think, an important distinction.
9: Yeah, and and one of the you know to to sort of segue into the into a you know different topic, there was a poll done uh, fairly recently that asked writers to say. Does fear of government reprisal in the U.S. and the U.K. and I believe some other uh, Western European countries does fear of government repi- reprisal limit what you write or what you cover? And you know, alarmingly high numbers of writers and journalists said yes. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, there are uh, th- there are examples that that we can see of governments in you know, quote unquote, free countries chilling. Expression in mm-hmm. a way that I don't—that I think is, uh, you know, is of a different kind. You know, not again, not to, to discount anything from the uh, the, the tragedy in, in Paris, but it, it just—it's it, of a different kind than than what we saw, than what we see from isolated attacks.
3: Right, right. And I, I don't know. I feel like there's been so much so much rallying around, you know, around the concept, well, this is an attack on speech. Yes, this is about free speech. Sure. But, you know, but then it's like, well, and and people responding with cartoons and all that, which is great. Like, yes, meet speech, meet the suppression of speech with with more speech. But again, we're talking about a, a, you know, a specific and isolated and non-state terrorist attack, which is just very different than, for example, you know, fearing that something you write my land do in jail
9: yeah which is which has been happening in the united states following right. uh and and also in uh scotland and a couple of other uh western countries also that uh glenn greenwald over at the intercept has a good write-up about this yeah
3: greenwald's thing at uh at the intercept is great and and yeah details a, a british guy um Who wrote basically, and this was a few years ago, but he basically, uh, after some, after two British soldiers were killed in Afghanistan, he wrote a Facebook post critical of soldiers being in Afghanistan and killing innocent civilians. And for that post, he was arrested and charged with like, the, the phrase is like grossly offensive disseminating grossly offensive material uh, uh. or something. And uh, and there's been other instances in, in Europe. But, you know, something that I saw a lot of people making the point yesterday, and, you know, I, I feel like sometimes it's exhausting to be like, don't talk about this, talk about this. Or, like, if you're talking about France without talking about this... Then fuck you or whatever. And it's like, listen, like, people can, people are going to talk, people are going to talk about what is resonating with them, yeah. right? At the same time, I think people are, you know, are very rightfully making a point, like, why aren't we talking about, uh, why does the NAACP bombing in Colorado Springs not get the same amount of, uh, of attention and, uh, and horror? Why is it not met with the same amount of horror and all that? But I also saw a lot of people saying, you know, listen, if you're talking about free speech under attack in Paris, and and not mentioning the fact that people are being, that people, six people uh, in New York City have been arrested for posting things on Facebook, on social media, uh, posting negative, you know, words about cops on social media, you know, then you are missing the fact that we have a serious free speech issue going on right here, you know.
1: It's the power of the words, of the words.
10: This is John Mill with a commentary called We Believe in Free Speech. No, really, all evidence to the contrary. Years ago, when I was teaching public speaking to community college students, I started an impromptu debate on the topic of free speech. It was easy to get a student to take the pro side. Nobody was willing to argue the con, so I did. What I said was, freedom of speech is the freedom to lie, to defame, to libel, to slander, to vilify, to offend, to blaspheme. My free speech allows me to make you uncomfortable. Do you really want to allow that? Like many Americans who hold dear their First Amendment, I was horrified at the events of last Wednesday in Paris. On the 7th of January 2015, two gunmen opened fire inside the offices of the satirical weekly newspaper Charlie Hebdo, killing twelve and wounding another eleven. That the gunmen were French Muslims seemed somehow relevant to the news media. Although the day before, the religion of the bomber at the Colorado NAACP headquarters was never mentioned in news reports, and also that during the attack they shouted, Allahu Akbar, God is great, in Arabic, and the Prophet is avenged, making clear their motive, if not their political constituency. To a female visitor at Charlie Hebdo, one of the two gunmen said, I'm not killing you because you are a woman, and we don't kill women, but you have to convert to Islam, read the Quran and wear a veil. Demonstrating, perhaps, that adherents of patriarchal religions, even when they have a political point to make, when it comes to subjugating women, just can't help themselves. Now, if you cannot recall the last time a bearded, yarmulke-wearing Jewish group shot up a publication espousing the blood libel, or reprinting the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, or the massive Catholic violence a generation ago, following the display of Andres Serrano's Piss Christ image, you could be forgiven. Nothing of the kind ever happened. And the mainstream media would not label it terrorism anyway, just as the word was missing in the description of the Colorado attack. A massive protest in Paris last Sunday, attended by many world leaders, except for the leaders of one country with an actual First Amendment, numbered over a million. The slogan, Je suis Charlie, I am Charlie, entered the popular imagination, along with the image of a pencil. French President François Hollande, like most politicians, showing no fear in expressing the obvious, described the worst terrorist attack on French soil in half a century as one of the most extreme barbarity. Free speech rights was on everyone's mind, everyone's lips. Support for Charlie Hebdo, which lampoons all religions, not just Islam, seemed to be strong by Sunday. But is it deep? More to the point... Was this support for free speech rights one of the foundational principles of modern liberal democracies, for which centuries of conflicts have been fought and oceans of blood have been spilled? Was it sincere or just for show? One wonders. One wonders when, as Jonathan Turley pointed out in a Washington Post op-ed the day after the attack, France's true free speech threat is from the government. It's not terrorists, but the nation's restrictive laws on speech. Turley went on, Indeed, if the French want to memorialize those killed at Charlie Hebdo, they could start by rescinding their laws' criminalizing speech that insults, defames, or incites hatred, discrimination, or violence on the basis of religion, race, ethnicity, nationality, disability, sex, or sexual orientation. These laws have been used to harass the satirical newspaper and threaten its staff for years. Indeed, you will find among the world leaders who stood arm-in-arm in support of Charlie Hebdo, in what was later revealed to be a staged photo, and others of the so-called liberal West, to be full of the same hypocrisy. Reporters Without Borders, RSF, says, There are far too many countries where news and content providers constantly face a very special and formidable form of censorship, one exercised in the name of religion or even God. In the bastions of free speech, it is still possible to run afoul of the law for defamation of religion in France, Great Britain, Spain, Russia, remember Pussy Riot, Ukraine, and India. Italy and Greece still have a blasphemy law on the books. In Germany and Turkey, it is still possible to get arrested for defamation of religion and blasphemy. Palestine showed up at the rally, but in Israel's neighbor, you can not only get arrested for defamation of religion and blasphemy, but also for apostasy. In Jordan, any of those crimes can bring a death sentence. In Israel, there is no penalty for free speech when it comes to religion, so long as you're not Palestinian. The same goes for the USA, so long as you're not exposing government corruption. I have a friend who never tires of reminding me hypocrisy always reveals the lie, and so in the cradle of Western freedoms, even in the country of liberté, égalité, fraternité, if you offend God, you have offended the law, and if you make a joke at the expense of the creator of the universe, the law laughs last. It is as if God, who is marketed as all-powerful, is too weak to defend himself. We can definitely talk about hypocrisy here said the campaign coordinator for La Quadrature du Net, a Paris-based internet rights group. Adrien Charmé goes on, In the past days we have seen a lot of people condemned for putting out words, no matter how condemnable those words, and receiving sentences that seem quite exaggerated. This crackdown on freedom of speech is a betrayal of last Sunday's march. Quelle ironique, as the French may say. Worse, In the worst traditions of the patriarchal religions, which would be pretty much all religions, and not unlike those who see rape victims as getting what they deserve if they don't dress or behave precisely as the patriarchs wish, it seems some would lay the blame for the murders at Charlie Hebdo at the feet of the cartoonists themselves. Bill Donahue of the Catholic League declared that the victims brought the attack upon themselves by intentionally insulting Muslims, essentially saying, and not without a wink to the Catholics who long for the day of the Audit de Fe, that you reap what you sow. Though self-serving in the brain of Bill Donahue, who yearns to punish those who insult Catholicism with impunity, and whose sentiment was echoed by none other than Pope Francis himself, his idea is indistinguishable from the heckler's veto, the legal theory that free speech can be curtailed by the government if reaction to that speech might be violent. The problem with that theory, and with Donahue's, and with hate speech laws and laws against defamation of religion, is the same. As the Economist put it three days after the attack, nothing can be done with a pencil or a keyboard that warrants a reprisal with a Kalashnikov, and nothing can change the fact that speakers, including cartoonists, are exercising natural rights, but that legal and extra-legal attacks on speakers are suppressing those rights. Western democracies take note, because free speech, as the masses on Sunday seemed to say, but their leaders seem not to understand is the foundation of every other liberty. It is, or should be, job number one of any government of the people to protect the people from attacks on ideas, not from the ideas themselves. As I tried to point out to my students so many years ago, nobody has the right to be unoffended by speech. If you have to promise not to make anybody uncomfortable with your words or your drawings, there is no free speech. And anyway, how exactly would a politically correct political cartoon look...
11: obviously charlie hebdo it's a tragedy it goes without saying i just question the wisdom of going out of your way to antagonize an oppressed minority in your country my feeling is there are five million arabs in france 70 70 of their prisons are filled by muslims they're an aggrieved party what is the purpose of satire? Why would you kick down and antagonize a group of people who are extraordinarily sensitive? And I don't consider it satire to go after radical Islam. I think if your country is already at war with radical Islam, that's not satire, it's propaganda.
8: And what figure did you come out in terms of Terrorist incidents in Europe, by comparison. There was an article, in
11: fact, I'm going to interview the professor later today. Two percent of all terrorism in the EU is Islamic, radical Islam. The rest are separatist factions. Like what? Well, I guess like Basque separatists, groups who want to secede from a specific part of their country
8: independence well this is obviously a ghastly tragedy but jonathan turley who's a professor of law we're going to have mond someday on this show at george washington university he's a litigator on human rights he's a great professor of law this sunday in the washington post he wrote an article and the headline was the biggest threat to french free speech isn't terrorism it's the government of France. And he goes into considerable detail. This is Jonathan Turley, T-U-R-L-E-Y. And he analyzes three French statutes on the books that criminalize speech in a whole variety of ways. I think he's almost an absolutist in free speech, but people have been convicted and sent to jail for speech unrelated to inciting violent crime. He says, France's appetite for speech control has only grown. And he gives an example where recent speech regulation in France has not only expanded into non-hate speech, but the courts are routinely intervening in matters of opinion. For example, and I'm quoting Jonathan Turley, last year a French court fined blogger Carolyn Dudet and ordered her to change a headline to reduce its prominence on Google for her negative review of a restaurant. And he says, while France long ago got rid of its blasphemy laws, there's precious little difference for speakers and authors in prosecutions for defamation or hate speech. And so he makes the point that there's a double standard here, and it should be addressed. He said, it was the growing French intolerance of free speech that motivated the staff of Charlie Hebdo, and particularly its editor, Stéphanie Charbonnier, who made fun of all religions with irreverent cartoons and editorials. And so I think the lesson is, let's broaden the context, let's drop the discriminatory hypocrisy or discrimination, and address the whole issue of free speech, non-violence, open debate, and focus on the coercive efforts of government, which in its repressive nature can find eruptions of violence that are fairly attributed to that kind of repression. So I urge you all, and by the way, he says, quote, the French, of course, have not been alone in rolling back protections on free speech. Britain, Canada, and other nations have joined them. We have similar rumblings here in the United States. It's a very good article, Washington Post, January 8th, by Professor Jonathan Turley, T-U-R-L-E-Y.
11: Do you believe there's such thing as a hate crime in America?
8: There's hate speech. The question for civil libertarians is, should it be a crime? If it doesn't incite violent action. For example, you cannot falsely shout fire in a crowded theater and then create a panic and people get hurt. The person who does that can't say, oh, I'm exercising my First Amendment freedom. So, it's always a matter of where do you draw the line. Most legal scholars are extremely protective of disgusting speech and the kind of speech that you know, you would find repulsive. Because as Anthony Lewis has said in his last book, The uh, Great Columnist for the New York Times, he basically said that if you can't protect speech by those who hate you, you're not an advocate of free speech. Of course, that goes back to Voltaire saying, I may disagree with you, but I'll fight to the end to protect your right to say it. Having said that, We've got to start asking, what leads to these kinds of violent eruptions? Is it money? Not in the Paris case. Is it a sense of grievance? Is it a personality of aberration? We just don't like to go into explanations. Is it because they have relatives in the Arab world who've been killed by drones or by U.S. invasion of Iraq? All that kind of discussion is considered taboo. It's really quite interesting. The focus is on the massacre. It should be focused on, of course. But then if you don't understand why people engage in that kind of behavior, and you simply approach it with brute force and collective punishment of a lot of innocents who happen to have the same funny-sounding last names, you're only going to spread that kind of behavior.
6: The scaremongering machine is in full effect it 's not to say that there aren 't scary people on the run or that there aren 't potentially dangerous people on the run, but if you watch as I know you do like if you watch big corporate media coverage over the weekend it's it 's fear Inc you know and um, and they 're just revving up the the fear engine again these are these This is a serious incident people need to be brought to justice for this anyone involved with it does, but like the the, the fear is counterproductive France deploying ten thousand soldiers on the streets of its city I mean this is government the state will always look for a reason to overreact and to sweep up civil liberties. That's, that's what we saw in this country after 9-11. We've never been able to, 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 to roll it back. That's exactly what's happening in France right now.
5: How do they
3: prepare for future attacks?
6: Well, I mean, there's, there, the discussion you would hear on big corporate television about that is going to be about how do we defend our society, how do we integrate these networks, how do we do surveillance on these people. You know, this, this is probably going to be an unpopular thing to say, um, but I'll say it because I believe it. Um, the only way I think we're ever going to effectively be able to confront uh, this kind of terrorism um, is to take away uh, the justification or the motivation of people who are not already sort of committed uh, radical individuals who believe that what they're doing is justified and they're not afraid to die. You know, the Taliban fighters, you know, always say, you know, we love death as much as you love life. Um, but a lot of these people who do these attacks, so- something happened in their life somewhere. Uh, similar to what happens with school shootings here, uh, you know what happened to Columbine. I, I liken a lot of these guys to uh, people who go through some kind of period where they're lost in life, and then they're falling. Who catches you when you fall? Um, a lot of times, in a society that's been decimated, a religion that's been humiliated, people are looking for some kind of greater meaning, and and there are a lot of people willing to take advantage of them. But in a in a in a broader sense. Um, what we've done uh, since 9/11, and actually going back well before 9/11, with the unquestioning support for Israel, with the drone bombing campaigns, with the invasions and occupations of countries, with the torture of prisoners around the world, we have projected a message that we are at war with a, a religion. When Rupert Murdoch, the most powerful media figure in the world, goes on Twitter and, and uses the word "Muslim," but uh, it, it says that basically all Muslims are to blame for this until they stop it. Um, that, though, that's not lost on people around the world there's and bush used the word crusade uh in, in the early stages of the post 9/11 aftermath so i'm not saying that any of this is justified as a result of us policy but if we really want to confront this we have to understand our own role in legitimizing it it's interesting it.
2: to see Olanga in the
1: While I'm so sorry Let's do it again And again Once more Again And again And again Once more, please Again
12: One of the things that drives me crazy about the war on terror is not that there is a war on terror. Sometimes it's hard to, you know, I mean... People attack you. You're in a war, right? But the way we're fighting it, if this was a game of bridge or a war game or anything like that, the first thing you'd be asking yourself, if you're a good player, is how do I win? And then that would be the overriding goal every step of the way. You do not win by playing defense. And almost everything we do, and when I say we, I mean the entire non-terrorist you know terrorist world, the entire you know, way we fight this thing is defensive. Even stuff that looks like it's offense is, in fact, defense. I mean, you think, what do you mean, Dan? We're we're droning uh, radicals all over the Middle East. We're attacking. We have troops on the ground, and this and that. And the other country stamping out radical things. We we've knocked down all these terrorist training camps in Afghanistan. That's defensive, folks. Offense means going at the fountainhead. That is, I mean, if you think about it, like 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 a fountain or a wellspring somewhere. If we think of of, of our problem here as a wellspring of extremist ideas, if you will, we're attacking the rivulets that run down, you know, the side of it. Getting rid of training camps is simply getting rid of the results created by the bad idea. If the bad idea continues to create new results, you will be destroying terrorist training camps until the end of time. It's defense. Terrorism's like water. It's why the tactic is popular. You harden airplanes, they go after trains. And when you think to yourself, we'll just cover everything, they shoot your celebrities. Right? You can harden the whole society, and how much folks have we spent? How much money have we spent? You know, when you talk about opportunity costs, what else could we have spent? You know, once you harden the common sense targets, what could we have used that money on in a more effective way to get to our goal in the war on terror, which is to win? Well, as I've said many times before on this program, you have to attack the idea. You have to go after that wellspring that continues to create new little worker ants that keep our forces busy killing them. Um, I've said that for years. There was an interesting article, though, in my local paper of all things by a guy. I want to quote him a little bit because... You know, sometimes you can take Dan Carlin's um, kooky, insane idea and give it a good name and it sounds totally legit all of a sudden. Why didn't I think of that? Um... And by the way, before a million people write me, lots of people had this idea. I'm not, if I ever get, like, the idea, you'll be the first to hear me proclaim it as my trademarked idea. I'll get a little sound that that is like the trademark stamp, and every time I say it, you'll hear that. So so if I don't say that, I probably don't own that idea. Um, But to me, people who see this clearly, wouldn't I say that, understand that this is a war of ideas. And we are particularly vulnerable because we're a society, Western culture that champions, you know, the open nature of our societies two ideas and even dangerous political ideas. Should the Nazis be on Twitter? This man's name who wrote this article that appeared in my local paper, and that happened on January 8th, 2014, 24- 2015, God, it's going to happen a few more times, folks. I'm warning you. January 8th, 2015, Ajit Mann, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, in the Eugene Register Guard. He's, he's um, identified in the paper uh, as the author of Counterterrorism Narrative Strategies. Well, that's what we've been talking about for years. That's how you fight offense in a war of ideas with counterterrorism narrative strategies. That's a great way to put it. He says, quote, the United States urgently needs a counter narrative to address extremist propaganda, and it should be delivered by a credible source. Unfortunately, both the narrative and the credible source have proven difficult to come by. He says, given recent and not so recent revelations, government sources may not be the most credible nor trustworthy messengers of an anti-terror narrative. The message might have a better reception if it comes from civilian ranks, he says. But then he says, quote, whoever takes on this battle and wherever they come from will have to come up with a strategy that directly attacks the narrative, not the ideological basis of extremism with equal and opposite force, end quote. And he says the reason you do that is because if you attack it from an ideological basis, that takes time. He says narratives work immediately. He says a story will outpace the facts every time. And the effect of stories, he says, will last long after the facts are forgotten. Stories don't have to defend their premises. All they have to do is cause associations and provoke identification. He says, communicating in times of urgency should take the form of storytelling and should enlist cognitive triggers. This variety of strategic communication is not a substitute for rational analysis and logical argument. It is the way to communicate the products of analysis and reason, particularly when there is an urgent and immediate need to affect behavior. Narratives change how power works. Whoever constructs the operative narrative holds power. As we are seeing, he writes, that makes narrative the perfect weapon for a less powerful actor it is there at the narrative level that we must be confrontational end quote in other words you know fighting ideas with other ideas and behavior this author's point is that you know the behavior has to match the ideals too this isn't a propaganda war but the point that's most important in this piece is the need for the new narrative or the counter narrative to come from a credible source and, and, and this is where it's apparent that a place like the United States, as much as we like to see ourselves, and maybe France and the West, we like to see ourselves as the, you know, core enemy of Islamic extremism, have to accept the fact that we're not. That we are a sideshow. That this is not a war designed to do anything to us, even though Americans constantly say it is. This is a conflict for Islam. We have allies in this war and those are the people who have any credibility with the people that are being recruited and who are vulnerable to the narrative that people like the Islamic state throw out there the ISIS folks it is only the islamic folks who can eventually define what is islam and what sort of teachings are outside the boundaries that that that, that become sects and cults and heretics From the Islamic view. I mean, you need to hit these people on a motivational level where they live. The motivational level is God. You only hit the God level by somebody whom they trust telling them that that person they're listening to that says God wants them to go cut people's heads off is an idiot and a heretic and is not a true Muslim. If you say it, if the United States says it, if we start putting out World War Two style propaganda videos saying that, we're the crusaders trying to teach Muslims about Islam. That doesn't work. And there are more people, as I said earlier, coming forward and, and who have more credibility than, than anything we might put forward. I mean, uh, the... Um, We mentioned the um, Amman message that the King of Jordan had put forward uh, a couple years back. These are attempts to get together religious scholars and start to define, you know, what's okay and what's not. We may differ between ourselves, but, but what is mainstream Islam and what encompasses this? But there's been some movement. I mean, where we sit now is to have these debates and nobody does anything. But, um, the leader of Egypt, who let's understand is not only unelected, but who is responsible for overthrowing the people that were elected, which turned out to be the kind of people the United States would hope. Would never be elected. His name is Al Sisi, but he made some comments that, even though they kind of fit what the United States would hope, a Muslim leader would say, a little too closely to take at total face value, are still interesting. And, and conservative media in the United States has been on this story. Um, this one's from the International Business Daily. It's an editorial that appeared on their website on the 5th of January, 2015, from the beginning of the piece. Uh, and by the way, the sub headline for this is Beginning of an Islamic Reformation. From the beginning, quote, To many in the West, Islam seems mired in a pre-medieval mindset that makes it unable to reconcile the fundamental precepts of its faith with those of the modern world. But there are encouraging signs of change. In what Roger L. Simon rightly calls an extraordinary New Year's speech, the story says, that got virtually no attention in the West, Egypt's president, Abdel Fattah al-Sisi, issued a sweeping, no-holds-barred critique of Islam and suggested it needs major reform. This is al-Sisi talking now. Quote, It's inconceivable that the thinking that we hold most sacred should cause the entire Islamic world to be a source of anxiety, danger, killing, and destruction for the rest of the world. Is it possible, he asked, that 1.6 billion Muslims should want to kill the rest of the world's inhabitants, that is 7 billion, so that they themselves may live? End quote. He then said Islam needs a quote-end-quote religious revolution. Now, what's interesting, though, folks... Is that there are a lot of people who are already on that side of the Islamic divide, if you will. Anyone who would have answered my question about coming out of the church and finding the, or mosque or synagogue and finding that person, you know, defiling your religious sacred object, anyone who would have thought that death was not the right answer to that is already on the right side of the divide, which to me includes most Muslim people in the world. I mean, if you know any Muslims, you say to yourself, well, those aren't the people I know. They're not people who would do anything like that. Of course not. And so when we talk about this war on Islamic extremism, as we said, it's a war between other people and we're on one side. We're on the side of the Islamic folks who think it's crazy that the penalty for being offended, even if it's religious offensiveness, should be death. There's nothing wrong with feeling offended, but you need to be boycotting and protesting and writing your congressman and you know getting advertisers to stop advertising in the western modern world that's how we do it there's a lot of folks in islam who think that's how you should do it too and those are the people who need to come out victorious in this struggle to define what is permissible in islam and what is heretical
0: Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make the show possible. Thanks to Katie Klubusik for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, the number to dial is 202-999-3991. And I'll be getting back to the voicemails in the next episode. But for now, I want to continue the conversation but take it in a new direction. I wanted to use the you know main part of the show to say pretty much everything i have to say about the attack itself but surrounding the conversation of the ta- of the attack is you know multiple secondary conversations one of which has to do with sort of analyzing the satire of the magazine itself you know critiquing it as you know questioning whether it's good satire or bad satire and then even secondarily to that questioning whether or not it's racist or often racist. And uh, for a long time listeners of the show, you may notice that the intersection of critiquing satire and comedy and racism is sort of my sweet spot or what I like to imagine is my sweet spot anyways. So I heard a clip that I'm going to share a couple of clips with you, but I heard one that I really sort of struck a, a nerve in a way that I thought like this Will be a good conversation starter. So to start, this is actually from an interview that another clip has already played. This is Truthdig Radio talking to Juan Cole. He was the one who gave the potential explanation for, you know, why they carried out this attack. Like maybe it wasn't just completely mindless, but it's actually a recruiting tool. So he went on to talk about the uh, the issue of racism in the magazine and this is what he had to say.
2: Let me ask you about Charlie Hebdo. Um we've heard a lot of different things in the news. It's a publication that's familiar to some more than others. I think um I just read a news story saying they normally run uh do a run of um sixty thousand copies every other week and this week they're gonna do one of one million because there's this sudden interest in who they are and what they do and it's a defiant moment and um kudos to them. But um You know, I was reading something uh, where a a writer accused them of doing, frankly, racist cartoons. Do you find that to be true?
5: No, I I don't think that uh, what they were doing was at least intentionally racist. Um, You know, uh, this magazine goes back to the late 60s, and it's kind of leftist slash anarchistic. Uh, It's a little bit maybe like the Ramparts uh, was at, at that time. Uh, and um, so they're just irreverent, and uh, they make fun of everybody. And, you know, it, it, the Muslims in, in France are both a religious group uh, and, uh, in a way, an ethnic minority, insofar as very large numbers of them are North African Arabs. Uh, and uh, it's very hard to distinguish between trying to get their goat on religious grounds and uh, making fun of them uh, on ethnic grounds. Um, but as I, as you rightly said, only about a third of them, uh, the Muslims in France, report themselves as being religiously observant. Uh, so the religious attacks, you know, do bother uh, a large number of people. Uh, there are about five million Muslims in France, so probably a couple million of them really mind. But uh, but I don't I don't see them as as racists. Uh, I mean I think the the racism category is, is very well filled in France by the far right, by, by the National Front.
0: So far, so good. Nothing terribly noteworthy at this point, you know, just sort of explaining his perspective on, you know, their style of humor and where they're coming from. And, you know, since they're generally progressively minded, you know, their, their intention is probably not to be racist because that's just not the kind of humor progressives usually go for. And then a few minutes later in that conversation, uh, he, he comes back to this topic and says this.
5: The other thing to say, you know, we were talking about uh, racism and, and and so forth, but, you know, th- there's a sense in which some of these uh, cartoons very much look like the kind of things the Nazis used to draw about Jews. Uh, and uh, so you have the long hooked noses and uh, you have the uh, accusations of not being, you know, proper Aryan rational people of being of being uh, uh overly emotional and fanatical and so forth and uh and so although i i don't think that's what was intended uh uh by uh, Charlie Hebdo, you know, there is given the history of racism in Europe, some of these are pretty unsavory and and you know people respond to their local Political environment. If in the United States a, a cartoonist caricatured Martin Luther King as a step and fetch it character with exaggerated uh, African American features, can you imagine the blowback there would be?
2: Well, I think that would be. I think that would be racist. I mean, that it would, would strike racist. that would strike me as racist. But you say you don't think these are racist cartoons, or at least they're not well, intended I, to be.
5: That I, I, I don't. I, I think. That they were mainly uh, from the left and, and trying to make light of fundamentalist religion. Mm-hmm. But that inadvertently, some of the imagery uh, ends up, you know, you could interpret it as, as racist.
0: So this set off several alarm bells for me, as I'm sure you can imagine. And, you know, I I trust Juan Cole generally on foreign policy issues. He's incredibly informed on that topic. But I have no idea if he knows anything about comedy or how it works. I've never heard him talk about it until now, as far as I can tell. And and hearing him say what he just did, he was basically tying himself in knots, sort of contradicting himself while trying somehow desperately to make it sound as though... You know when you are progressive minded you are somehow inoculated from being racist and and the worst case scenario is that if you are racist, then it is incidental you know that that it's just it's something that happens accidentally you know it happens to the best of us every once in a while we're just a little bit racist because it's not the focus of of the cartoon or the satire that they're trying to get across that's like that's the best view he can put on it but I don't know why anyone would have that position. You know, there's nothing about being progressive that makes you immune to being racist. Essentially, all progressives are racist, just happens to be a little bit less than conservatives tend to be. That's just how it breaks down generally. But, you know, when you create a cartoon that has some accidental racism in it, and then you print it and you distribute it to the public, there's really not much difference between that accidental racism and intentional racism ...when it's consumed by someone because no one can really know whether it was accidental or not. So if it's racist, it's racist. And if you didn't mean for it to be racist, well, then you're just not doing very good comedy. So if you're drawing caricatures of people that are way over the top and really exaggerated... ...and, I mean, as he just described it, similar to the way Nazis drew cartoons about Jews... You're treading in some very strange territory, and so if if the focus of the joke doesn't revolve around you know satirically uh, you know drawing the people that way, then there's really no benefit to it that I can see and, and the one little comment about satire that was in the main part of the show was uh, David Feldman talking about how you know if your country is at war with a group of people you know ostensibly and then you draw cartoons that caricature them that's not so much satire as it is propaganda i tend to agree with that sentiment but it begs the question is there a time when it's ever appropriate to caricature people and and draw you know incredibly you know racist over the top depictions of individuals and i would actually argue that there are times when it's appropriate to do that, and I have an example, but I'll get to that in a minute because Jimmy Dore also has an example, and you know, as a professional comedian himself, he did a pretty interesting breakdown of one comic on his show. So let's hear that first.
13: This is from Glenn Greenwald. So Glenn Greenwald uh, talked. He wrote a column. Of course, it, I didn't, and I can't read you the whole thing because it's Glenn Greenwald, and it's about forty-five pages.
5: <laughs> <laughs>
13: so here's a, here's the paragraph that I got out of his uh, article. He says some of the cartoons published by Charlie Hebdo were not just offensive but bigoted, such as the one mocking the African sex slaves of Boko Haram as welfare queens. Okay, now I've heard a lot of people, I think maybe this is what Chris was referring to, and I've heard a lot of people say this, and uh, let me just say one quick thing. That Boko Haram Haram Welfare Queen cartoon is the perfect example of why you can't criticize satire in someone else's culture. Because if they go, oh, they have, because the Boko Haram cartoon has pictures of those girls that they kidnapped and raped as they're pregnant... And they look very, you know, um, right. uh, in a denigrating way, African. If without for for a better way of well, for with less of a I can't think of a better way to say it. So they're kind of stereotyped as these the, a demeaning way African, mm. and they're pregnant, and they're and the caption was uh, they want their they want their welfare checks, right? Mm. So they would point to that just like Greg, Greg, Greg Greenwald just did and said it was a bigoted. No, what they were doing in that cartoon was not bigoted. What they're doing is called satire. They were making fun of the extreme right wing in France, who always looks down their nose at anyone who who wants welfare help as being someone looking for a handout who doesn't deserve it. So they were making the point, they were satirizing their view of the women who were kidnapped and raped by Boko Haram. That's their view of them, that they were satirizing. That's the equivalent of Archie Bunker saying something racist on All in the Family because they're satirizing that guy. They're not saying that. That's not what... Um, Norman Lear really thought on All right. in on, yeah. on the Family he had a guy say that stuff so we could all lampoon it and make fun of it and laugh at it that was the same thing that Charlie Ebdo was doing there they weren't being racist they wouldn't really do that because kind of, when I saw that cartoon and I heard people talk saying the stuff about it I went and looked it up and I was like, that can't be what they're saying. So I did some research, and that's exactly what they were doing. Is That was that was aimed at the, the right wing in France. Because these people doing Charlie Hebdo were very left, very liberal. And the idea that they would then do this didn't make sense. It was incongruent. So I knew there was something I was missing. And, of course, there's something we're all missing. A, it's satire. So being angry at that cartoon and calling it bigoted is like watching Stephen Colbert and calling him a crazy right winger.
0: Now, I think that's a pretty good example of how if you are missing context required for a joke, just as Jimmy was saying, that you're going to completely misunderstand it. You know, of course it's going to be offensive if you get the exact opposite impression as the author of the joke intended. So yeah, of course, when it comes to especially satire and political satire, missing the context that's required is going to doom you to misunderstand and very often be offended by you know, a joke or a cartoon or whatever that is not in any way intended to be offensive to any, you know, marginalized group. It it should be attacking probably, you know, a powerful group or, you know, a hateful group or, you know, someone like that. That should be the target. Now, I actually have an example that's sort of similar, but from, you know, closer to home. There's a pretty famous New Yorker cover from July 2008. If I'll describe it, you'll probably even recognize it. It's one, I guess it was during the campaign, you know, Obama's first campaign for president. And the New Yorker cover shows Barack and Michelle Obama in the Oval Office. Uh, Barack is dressed up in Muslim garb. Michelle is dressed up like a militant Black Panther with, you know, the giant fro haircut. Uh, You know, they're both sort of with the exaggerated features and the big lips and things like that. Um, There's a, a a painting of Bin Laden over the hearth and in the fire is the American flag. So, you know, that's the picture that goes on the New Yorker. You know, so if you didn't have any context for the political climate in America, then you would think the New Yorker was saying really, really, really unbelievably terrible things about the Obamas. But if you know the political climate in America, then you know that they are depicting all of the absurd accusations that were being thrown at the Obamas from the extreme right wing, just as with the Boko Haram cartoon that Jimmy was just describing. So I'm certainly not here to make a judgment, uh, blanket or otherwise, on Charlie Hebdo as a a magazine. What I'm trying to point out is that what you should do before coming to any uh, conclusion or strong opinion on it is you almost have to look at the cartoons one by one, and do the studying required to get all of the context necessary. So, are some of them racist? Almost certainly. Are some of them seen as racist, but actually aren't? Almost certainly. And before I go, I have one more thought on satire sort of generally. And many of you will remember that within the last several months or so, I did a sort of a, a, a dissection of a new conservative political satire show. It's trying to be something similar to the conservative version of the Daily Show, and I played some clips from it and broke it down and basically just, you know, decried how unbelievably terrible it was and, and just sort of wept for the for conservatives trying to do comedy at, at their complete inability to understand how to do comedy right because when. Liberals get together and they talk about comedy. It is basically seen as a, a truth sent down from heaven that, you know, I can quote it and you, you can say it back to me. Good satire always kicks up, not down. But I've had a little bit of a change of heart on that. It's not that good satire kicks up as a, as a universal truth. It's that if you are progressive minded at all, then that is true. But, you know, after I did that show, uh, Wade, who many of you out there love, called in, and I, I didn't play this message because I was. Ready for that conversation to be done with. But he called in saying like, Oh, come on, Jay, that's ridiculous. You know, conservatives can be funny. And like those clips you were playing weren't so bad. And people were laughing, you know, know, at those jokes that you said were so terrible. So apparently some people think it's funny. And it it got me thinking a little. Uh, I certainly didn't think that the jokes were any better (laughs) based on that uh, comment. But what it made me realize is that, you know, satire isn't only intended to kick up it's that it can go both ways it just shows it's very revelatory about the satirist and those who laugh at the resulting satire so the satire on the conservative show was you know one of the clips i played was the the host very openly and cartoonishly mocking uh native americans doing a, a really over the top native american v- voice and like the joke sort of hinged on don't native americans sound funny like that was kind of the joke in its entirety and if you're someone like me who thinks that satire should kick up because i think that the, my whole perspective is to sort of attack powerful people who abuse their power like that that's kind of my thing that as you know almost everyone who listens to this show and almost all liberals are sort of on the same page there whereas conservatives they they don't mind kicking down like native americans are an incredibly marginalized group of people in this country so let's mock the way they used to talk or a cartoonish version of how we think they used to talk and laugh at them for that. Like that basically equates to bullying. It's not much more complicated than that. But the thing is, some people are bullies. Some people like picking on those smaller and weaker than them, you know, people who are more marginalized than they are, and they get off on it, like, you know, genuinely. And I can, I can judge them and think that they're terrible people for feeling that way, but it doesn't mean that that satire as terrible as it sounds to me, doesn't speak to them and make them laugh. So in a way, my perspective on satire hasn't changed at all. Just my definition of the word satire has expanded a bit. So I'll I'll give conservatives this much. You're allowed to say that your political comedy is satire, but I still think it's exactly as terrible as I always did. And if you go out of your way to mock those weaker than you and less able to defend themselves than you, then you're a bully and kind of a terrible person. So that's going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations. That is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it, leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher, and by donating your accounts at donateyouraccount.com slash left. Stay tuned into the show by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter, and for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway, yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com.
2: And it's a crying shame How we get so trained, we can
13: see past our own sad story.